Well, good evening, everybody. It's a massive uh, privilege for me to be back in Crumlin tonight. I have really fond memories of this place about 12 years ago when I was 17 or 18. I uh, came along on some of the summer outreach teams that, that happened here, and just looking back now, I can see that the Lord really used that in my life, and that was a really formative experience for me. It was the first time I'd done any sort of outreach or evangelism um, in that sort of formal sense, and it was terrifying and daunting and probably made a lot of mistakes, and yet the Lord really used those experiences to put in my heart this this burden for evangelism, and it's just a privilege to be back um, where that all happened. Uh, thanks to Andy for reading this wonderful passage from Mark chapter 14 that I want us to look at tonight for about 25 minutes or so. I wonder about five years ago if you managed to see, maybe not because it was on RTE and I know not uh, all the TV sets up here pick up RTE, but there was a series on RTE called The Meaning of Life. And the presenter, Gay Byrne, who has since passed away, actually, he would interview different uh, famous people. Some of them were Irish. Some of them were from England. They were from everywhere, really. And it was really about spiritual questions. What is the meaning of life? What are your thoughts on God and spirituality? And it was quite broad. But the final question that Gay Byrne would ask every single one of these celebrities would be, if you were to stand before God tonight, what would you say to him? And the most famous of these interviews was with a man called Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is a very active atheist. He is an actor and a comedian from England. And whenever Gay Byrne asked Stephen Fry this question, what would you say to God if you were to stand before him tonight? Stephen Fry responded like this, and it got a lot of coverage in the media. He said, I would say to God, bone cancer in children, what's that all about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's evil. Why should I respect a God who creates a world so full of injustice? And what we had there is a really famous example of a human being, a creature, a created being like Stephen Fry putting his creator, God, who is eternal, on trial. God, you answered in me. How dare you? He said to God, how dare you? The human, the created being, putting God, the creator, on trial. And that's a really blatant, obvious example of that happening. But if we're honest, we see human beings putting God on trial every single day, don't we? Maybe you're in work and someone says to you, you say you believe in God. Well, this God that you believe in, how can he allow such suffering in the world? You answer to me, God. Or maybe someone says to you, if God's real, why doesn't he prove himself a little bit more? Come on, God, answer to me. God is put on trial by humanity every single day all over the world. And the most obvious Example that, that we ever really have of this is what Andy read for us in Mark chapter 14 because we see God in the person Jesus Christ on trial, don't we? 
And I want us, as I said, to look at this for the next wee while, because it tells us lots about Jesus and what he's like, and also lots about what people are like as they put him on trial. And as we sort of attack this, I just want us to think of two, two separate things. The first is that we'll see one thing that Jesus is not willing to do, and the second is something that Jesus is willing to do. So, firstly, what is Jesus not willing to do? We're looking here at verses 53 down to the start of verse 61. And the first thing we see is that Jesus won't let himself die over false accusations. Jesus won't let himself die over false accusations. In verse 53, we go on this journey from Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus has been arrested, and we arrive at the high priest's house. The high priest is a man called Caiaphas. Now, you'll know that the disciples have all scattered, but it does tell us that Peter followed at a distance. And in verse 54, it says that Peter went right into the courtyard of the high priest. So Peter is in the high priest's house, but it's important to realize that Peter is is not in the same part of the house where the trial of Jesus is going on he's in a separate location in the courtyard so he's not right there but he he is in the vicinity, he is in the same house and a kangaroo court is set up now there's huge irony here the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the hoi polloi of Judaism, the chief priests elders and teachers they're the representatives of the Jewish religious and legal establishment and here they are breaking their own rules Loads of them. Their trials are meant to happen in the daytime. This one happens at night. Their trials are not, by their law, meant to happen on the eve of a festival. This one happens on the eve of Passover. The trials are not meant to be a private gathering. This one happens in the high priest's house. They're meant to start with a defense hearing. This one starts with the accusations. And they're not allowed to reach a conviction on the same day, which is exactly what happens here as they hurry through the guilty verdict. And the whole feeling is one of being rushed. It's not a neutral court. It's not a fair hearing. In fact, Jesus would get a fairer hearing when he goes on trial before the Romans. But back in Mark chapter 14, verse 1, if you want to flick back to it, and you maybe already know, that these guys, the Sanhedrin, they've already determined that they're going to arrest Jesus and death is the only punishment that they're interested in. That's what they want to happen. And they won't stop until they get that. His guilt has already been decided. But they have to carry on the charade of justice. And they need evidence for a conviction. They need a charge. We're going to get him put to death. What charge can we get against him? You see, in their culture, as in any culture really, in the history of the world, the death penalty is the most serious charge that you can have, isn't it? And they need at least two witnesses for this to be agreed upon. It's the biggest price that someone has to pay is to give up their own life. So, it's a dramatic courtyard scene, uh, courtroom scene. You all know the scene if you've seen it in TVs or, or movies or Maybe you've been in court yourself. The spotlight is on Jesus. He's in the dock. And these ready prepared witnesses are called forward, verses 55 and 56. And they fire different things at Jesus, but it says there that there's no consensus. Their stories don't add up. 
A couple of years ago, I had a friend, he, he was living in a care home, and it was complete chaos in that home every single day. The police were getting called all the time. So I would accompany him to court on a few occasions, and what they did was they just, because there was so much chaos in his life and so much going on, they would just pile a whole load of charges in together. So from a month's worth of charges just thrown in together. And he would come out of court and I would say, well, well, what was the accusation today? And he would say, I don't know, because there was just so much stuff coming at me. On the 13th of June this happened, 14th of June this happened, 15th of June, just stuff coming at him from every angle that it just didn't make any sense. It was just a mumbo-jumbo of accusations. So many charges, blah, 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 blah. Now, the difference between Jesus and my friend is that Jesus is obviously completely innocent, spotless, as was said earlier. He is totally without fault or blemish. He has never done anything wrong. My friend was guilty of some of those charges and innocent of others. But you get the idea. There's a mash of information coming at Jesus from all angles. He said this and he did that and all these different stories. But there's no consensus. So that line of questioning doesn't work. They can't get a charge. They can't get two witnesses to agree on a story for a conviction. So they go down a different route. Verse 57, if you're following along. Some stood up and gave this testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. So their accusation here is, Jesus is out to wreck the temple. Now me and you, because we're not versed in Judaism, we haven't grown up in that culture, we, we miss probably the seriousness of this. We think, if you're trying to get someone put to death, saying to them, oh, he's, he's out to wreck a building, is that really that big a deal? Is that enough to get a death penalty against him? But actually, this is an incredibly serious accusation in their culture. The temple is the symbol of Judaism, their power structure. It's maybe not a great illustration, but maybe if I was to ring up Arlene Foster or Michelle O'Neill and say, I am going to tear down Stormont and throw it in the lagging you get the kind of idea, because I'm not just talking about the building of Stormont, am I? I'm saying the whole democratic institution of this province, I am going to wreck it. And that's what they're saying about Jesus. It's not just a physical threat against the temple. They're saying he's against our whole system. He's against our, our law and our prophets. He's against Judaism itself. He's against our father Abraham. He's a blasphemer, he's, he's worthy of death. But verse 59, even then their testimony did not agree. There's still no consensus. So the first line of questioning, no consensus. The thing about the temple, no consensus. So they go down another route. Verse 60, the high priest himself stands up. Now up to this stage he's been seated. So he stands up to question Jesus. And what we have there is probably one of the most ridiculous scenes in the entire Bible and the entire history of the world. This high priest, Caiaphas, is a complete perversion of what he's meant to be. He's meant to be the mediator between God and his people, and yet he wants to put the Son of God to death he is 
obsessed with his political power and his own role. He's a proud man. He's a sinner. He's a created being like Stephen Fry, like me and you. And who does he stand up to question? He stands up to question our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the eternal creator, the great high priest, the one who allows us access to God, the one who is God. He the one who is the judge. And you can see, can't you, that it's totally the wrong way around. Again, all illustrations are a bit naff in comparison, but I have a friend called Johnny, and Johnny is friends with a guy called Tommy Bow. I don't know if that name rings any bells. Tommy Bow from Monaghan won 69 caps at rugby for Ireland, a complete superstar in the world of sport. And my friend Johnny and Tommy Bow went to college together and, and stay in touch. Now Johnny has a four-year-old son called Oliver, who's just getting into rugby. So one day Tommy Bow comes around to, to visit my friend Johnny, and this four-year-old boy Oliver is playing rugby in the back garden. And Tommy says, here Oliver, uh, throw us the ball. Tommy Bow, superstar, two tours with the British and Irish Lions, 69 caps for Ireland. And Oliver says, here, I'll show you how to kick this thing. Completely the wrong way round. And that's what we have here, isn't it? The great high priest, Jesus Christ, who brings us into the presence of God, who is God, questioned by a perversion of what the high priest is meant to be. And Caiaphas does not realize the identity of who he is actually talking to. Just like Oliver didn't realize I don't really get that this guy is actually maybe a bit more qualified in this sport than I am. It's a nonsense. So you're in Jesus' shoes. What do you do? What do you do? You could give a theological defense, a theological answer to Caiaphas whenever he stands up to question you. You could say that the temple is God's dwelling place and I am the one that the temple was actually pointing to. I am where God dwells because I am God himself. That's the theological defense you could give. I am Emmanuel, God with us. I am the one that the temple was pointing to. You could give a legal defense, a legal answer. Do you know, Caiaphas, your law says that you need two matching testimonies to convict me. And so far, we haven't had that. You don't have enough evidence to convict me. Your allegations don't agree. Verse 61 gives us how Jesus responded in his defense. He said nothing. That's a remarkable moment, isn't it? As Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53, that amazing passage about the suffering servant, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And me and you, with our sinful, fallen human nature, not thinking God's thoughts but our own thoughts, are thinking, come on, Jesus, show them, give them something back. Why such restraint? You see, what I think is going on here is that Jesus is choosing which charge 
he will answer. Jesus Christ, as you know, came into the world with a mission, and his mission was to die for our sins. He came as our rescuer, our saviour, our messiah. And while throughout the Gospels he's been saying, my hour has not yet come, he knows that now his hour has come, and this is the time coming very soon that he will die. And he is totally obedient to the will of his Father. And he's come to die for humanity's sin, humanity's rebellion. And he has come to die so that God and man can have that relationship which is broken by sin, restored. And because of all that, he knows that the reason why he must be put to death is important. He is put to death, as we'll go on to see, precisely because he claims to be God, because he is God. Because if God and man are going to be brought back into relationship, it has to be the one who is the God-man who restores it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Um, you're not a believer. You're, you're not born again. And it's great that you're here. I just want to challenge you just quickly with this question. What is your problem with Jesus? What is your charge against him? People have lots of charges against Jesus, but often it's sort of mumbo-jumbo, isn't it? It's confused. I heard this. I heard that. It's hearsay. Is your charge that you won't accept that he is God? And if that is on your mind, if if you're questioning, is he really who he says he is? I just challenge you to read this book of Mark, read this gospel for yourselves and investigate his claims. I know a lot of us here tonight are believers and by God's grace we've been able to see that Jesus is God, Jesus is who he says he is. And I wonder, maybe you're getting a hard time because of that. And I know it's not easy to be a Christian um, in Crumlin or in Belfast. <laughs> it's, it's not easy to follow Jesus. we just got to be careful, don't we, about whether we're getting a hard time because we're a Christian or are we getting a hard time because of something else? You know, Jesus here chooses which charge to answer. He chooses which hill to die on. He chooses what to stand his ground over. I know if you're anything like me, you can find a billion things in a day to have an argument about, can't you? Now, I'm not saying we don't stand our ground and be firm, but surely the example of Christ here is to choose our battles, not to fight every single argument, to try and win every single argument. Now, please don't take it that I'm saying if the deity of Jesus Christ is... Uh, being debated, don't don't worry about that, don't fight that. No, that's one we fight <laughs> to the bitter end, isn't it? But I know in my life that often arguments that we get embroiled in are not about me being a Christian, but about me being an Egypt. <laughs> yeah? We've got to choose our battles and choose our arguments. So, Jesus will not die over false accusations. He stays silent whenever he is falsely accused. And the reason for that is because of what we're going to go on to here in this second point, 
verse 61 till 65 we're looking at now. And it's this, Jesus is willing to die because people reject his claim to be God. Jesus is willing to die because people reject his claim to be God. One of the main themes in this Gospel of Mark is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And this question of identity has led him into conflict time and time and time again with the Sanhedrin, with the Jewish authorities. And it's all been building towards a climax, an explosion. So in the early part of the gospel, he's claimed that he's able to forgive sin. He's mixed with sinners. He's uh, had a different interpretation of Sabbath observance than the Jewish leaders. He's rode into Jerusalem as the Messiah. He's disrupted business in, in the temple. And it's all been building, building this conflict between Jesus and his claim to be God and the Jewish leaders who have a completely different idea of what the Messiah will be. Then in chapter 12, he's told this parable of, of a vineyard. And in it, he's cast himself as God's son. It's a ticking time bomb. A big confrontation is, is going to come. And in verse 61 of chapter 14, what we read, this climax, this showdown, finally comes. It's like one of those old westerns, Jesus versus Caiaphas. This town is not big enough for the two of them. And the exasperated high priest, who you remember, has stood up. He finally asks a direct question, and he says, Are you the Christ? They're desperate to convict him, and now the charge is very clear. The charge is blasphemy. Very serious charge in Jewish law, punishable by death. And in verse 62, Jesus breaks his silence, and it's a double whammy, a sharp left, right. The first part of that is he says, I am, I am. So on the surface level, he affirms, yes, I am the Christ. I am God's promised chosen king. I am God. And that's also a reference to the Yahweh language of the Old Testament, God's Old Testament name, what he spoke to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. And then the, the second part of this double whammy, he describes himself as the son of man, and he's referencing there back to Daniel chapter 7. I am God. And what he's really saying to Caiaphas is, I am God. I am the ultimate judge. And Caiaphas, you can judge me today, but one day I will sit at God's right hand and I will judge you for all eternity. Now the story as we go on here is absolutely tragic, isn't it? Because you would hope that Caiaphas, realizing what Jesus is saying, would bow the knee, would recognize the identity of the Son of God who he stands in front of. But his, one, his response is not one of awe. It's not one of fear of Christ as the judge. It says there that he tore his clothes and said, why do we need any more witnesses? Caiaphas has got what he wanted. This is the icing on the cake. Now he's got what he needed to convict Jesus of blasphemy. You all heard it, didn't you? Jesus has claimed to be God. We have the evidence that we need. We can get him put to death. Blasphemy 
is the charge. And Caiaphas is still going down this line of, Jesus, you answer to me. I'm your judge. And as I said at the start, that's not uncommon in the 2,000 years since, is it? Humanity, by and large, still thinks that God answers to us when really it's completely the other way around. In verse 64, one of the saddest verses, surely in all of scripture, says that they all condemned him as worthy of death. They've got far more than the two witnesses that they needed for the conviction. They all condemned him as worthy of death. You see, Jesus knows why he dies. He dies here because he claims to be God. And the people are very clear. That is why they put Jesus to death, because he claims to be God. Now, it's easy to read this and to think, how could they be so stupid? How could they not see who was standing in front of them? But that's the problem of blindness, isn't it? Spiritual blindness, unless the spirit opens our eyes. And if we see tonight that Jesus is God, how do we know that? Did you psychologically understand that? Did your wisdom help you to understand that? No. The Spirit of God rose you from death to life so that you could see the true identity of this Jesus Christ. And the problem here is not just this kangaroo court, is it? See, right from the start of humanity, what has man's issue been? It's been the refusal to accept God as God. Just like these won't accept Jesus as God. We won't submit to his claims to be God. And why is that? It's because we as humans, we want to be like God ourselves, don't we? We want to be the captain of our fate, the master of our souls. We want to be like God. Think of Eve back in the Garden of Eden. She wanted to know good from evil, to be like God. That's what the serpent tempted her with. You could be like God. Think of the people building the Tower of Babel. We can make a name for ourselves. We can be famous, just like God. Think of the people that you know today and their, their quest for knowledge and intelligence, their desire to live forever. Everyone's doing park run. That'll help me live forever. It won't. But that's the lie that we believe, isn't it? Why? Because deep within us, we have this sinful nature that wants to be like God ourselves. And a very simple truth, which I hope everyone here already knows, me and you, we're not God. We're not the judge. And what we need to do is accept this claim of Jesus Christ to be God, to submit to him, to bow the knee, what Caiaphas should have done. You're the judge, Jesus. I bow the knee. And what a God he is. Look at his grace, his mercy, his willingness. The minute that Jesus utters those words, I am, he, he knows where this is going. And he knows where this has been going since the moment he came into the world, since eternity. He willingly goes to the cross. What love, as the innocent one who is God, dies in our place so that we can be forgiven, so that we can know God. Know that many here, as I said, are, are Christians. You have accepted, you have bowed the knee, you have submitted to his claim to be God. And just to finish, I want us to look at verses 64 and 65. Because Jesus' acceptance 
of this charge, are you God, doesn't result in sunshine and roses, does it? Look at verse 64 and 65 with me. He's condemned. He's spat on. He's blindfolded, which is a degrading thing. He's punched. He's mocked. And he's beaten. And we haven't even got to the horror of Calvary yet. Whenever God's wrath for our sins is poured out on him. He willingly suffers as God for us. What can we do but thank him again tonight? He knows where he's going and he willingly goes and suffers for us. Just to finish, I want to ask us, are we willing to suffer with him? That's one of the most basic concepts, is it not, of being a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus suffered, we follow him, we too will suffer as we tread his path. And I know some of you tonight are suffering for the gospel. You're not suffering because you're picking fights, but maybe you're in work and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and because of that people ostracize you, they think you're weird, they don't want to talk to you, maybe they ignore you. Jesus says to us tonight, keep at it. I know way more about suffering than you do, and I understand what you're going through. Remember we said at the start that there was another scene developing in this house with Peter. He was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house, and you'll know the story how he denied Jesus three times. Why did he deny him? Because he wanted to escape the suffering, didn't he? He crumbled. He believed in Jesus. Remember earlier in Mark, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, spot on. But he crumbled when it came to the suffering bit. Albert King wrote a song way back years ago. You might know it. It sums this up very well. He said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Give me the glory, heaven, Jesus, sins forgiven. Brilliant. To suffer with him. Not so attractive. But Jesus' suffering is now over, isn't it? He suffered horrendously, more than anyone has ever suffered. But his suffering isn't ongoing today. Today, where is he? He sits enthroned as king and judge as the right, at the right hand of God. He judged Caiaphas for all eternity. And he will judge me and you, his suffering complete. So let's accept him. Let's accept his claim to be God. Let's submit to him, bow the knee to him. And as we follow him, we know that that means we will suffer. But as his suffering ended, so too one day we have that hope, don't we, as believers, that our suffering in this life is not going to last forever because one day we can be seated with him in glory. Let's pray. Dear God, it's a familiar passage of your word that we've come to tonight, and yet we just thank you again for your willingness, Jesus, to go to that cross and to suffer in our place. Lord, we admit that deep within us we long for comfort, 
We long to avoid any sort of suffering. And yet, we remember the words of, of the apostles who counted it a joy as being worthy of suffering for the name. Lord, help us to see that as well, Lord, that to suffer with you and for you is such a privilege, such a blessing. Lord, we thank you for your willing embrace of this suffering so that we can be forgiven. Lord, we thank you tonight that you are God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Lord, we can't get our head around that, Lord, that you've always been. The hands that flung the stars into space surrender to cruel nails. And yet, Lord, we believe it. We believe that you go to the cross as God so that we can know God. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you suffered, but now that you sit in glory. And Lord, help us to keep looking to you and to keep treading this path so that one day we can be there with you. In Jesus' name, amen.